Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast edition of the show for Friday, September 17th, 2021. And I am Kevin McDonald, your fearless host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you all are having just a terrific week and we are very excited to bring you our show this week. Of course, we always are, but we have got a fascinating story to bring you right off the top here that if you were like us here in the newsroom, you may not have had any understanding or inclination. I think a lot of us take for granted when wildfires break out that those federal wildland firefighters are going to be there and going to help to save important land, property, lives, all of that. And while that is true, the landscape has changed drastically in the last 20, 25 years. The fire season is longer. The fires are more dangerous. And this is the real kicker that we didn't know. Wildland, federal wildland uh, firefighters uh, are still considered seasonal. They don't have jobs that are year round. Uh, Their pay, uh, if you wanted to take a guess, I bet you wouldn't get it. It's $15 an hour on average is what these folks make after a recent bump and limited benefits as well, which again, don't carry over when the, during the part of the year that they are not contracted to work. And so we wanted to learn more about this and we're thrilled to be joined by some uh, firefighters, both current and past to find out more about their working conditions and the changes they would like to see come about. So let's get right into this with our environmental correspondent, Laura Paskus. Marcus, Jonathan, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. So we've all been watching the big fires in California. We've all got smoky skies. Um, I'm curious, can we start with you, Marcus? Can you talk a little bit about what life is like for a wildland firefighter? Sure. I would say, you know, first of all, it's a very sort of satisfying and fulfilling career because a lot of people that do it like to be outside, like to help their neighbors. It's a, a public service that I think a lot of us feel satisfied at doing at the end of the day. But really the realities that we're starting to face now with uh, potential climate change, I would say, increased fire seasons, more complex, longer duration, we're really starting to see, I would say, firefighters in a crisis mode. And this crisis mode is, is due to attrition. We have less firefighters on the ground at our federal levels because the pay and benefits are not adequate. Uh, folks are, are asked to basically have these year-round fire seasons where we're committed to go help across the country. So I would say we're, we're really kind of approaching a train wreck and in, in a, in a serious issue where firefighters are tired, they're kind of challenged uh, mentally and physically, and it's, it's really starting to enter a crisis mode, I would say. So recently I saw an ad for Wildland Firefighters that said, the jobs paid $15 an hour. And I understand that's a little bit of a bump, a Biden era bump, but one, is that enough to live on? And, and two, my understanding is these are considered seasonal jobs. So that $15 an hour is, is roughly for our entry level jobs, which as you said, just recently bumped up. So before that it was anywhere from 13 to $14 an hour, depending where you're at in the country. And these are all temporary 1039 positions is what they're considered which have zero benefits except for medical care. And the medical care they have to pay for 
it gets subsidized by the federal government during their employment, but as soon as the winter and they, they're laid off after six months, they have to pay the full price. So no retirement, uh, no opportunity to you know contribute to any kind of 401k, basically zero benefits. So when the fire season's over, and this is the bulk of our federal firefighters are really these temporary employees. They're, they're the ones that make up three quarters of our hot shots. They're the ones that make up three quarters of our hell attack and smoke jumpers. As soon as the season's over, they basically have no ability to access mental health care benefits to reach out for any kind of long-term physical uh, issues they're having. You know, once they're laid off and if their fire family's not there to support them, they have no benefits. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough position we put these temporary employees in and, and many of them live in their cars because they can't afford the housing around where they work. So places, you know, in the mountains, these mountain towns that have very expensive uh, places to live that don't have crew quarters, basically these, these kids are living in their cars to go and fight wildland fire across the country, which is, it's, it's hard to say and hard to think about, but I've been there, you know. I did 11 years as a seasonal, and I look back and, and just kind of like, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Martin, you worked as a wildland firefighter for 35 years for the Forest Service and for the Bureau of Land Management. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this sort of long-term immersion in emergency situations, which is different from what we see sort of municipal firefighters or even police officers. Wildland firefighters are dealing with something very different. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Laura. And just for clarification, I spent half my career with the Forest Service and half with the National Park Service and, and um, didn't work for the BLM, but uh, worked with them quite a bit throughout my career. They, the, correct, the, the immersion that we're seeing now is way completely different than when I started 35 years ago. Um, I might have gained maybe 400 hours of overtime um, during a summer season. And now we're seeing people regularly working 1,000, 1,500. And I think I've even heard that there's people out there that are almost working like 2,000 hours uh, of overtime a year. So this constant immersion in an emergency uh, mode um, is really having a, a tremendous impact on, on people's mental health and well-being, to say nothing of their physical uh, well-being as well, when they're exposed to tremendous amounts of smoke, um, lots of risks and dangers with um, traveling on um, really rough, rugged backcountry roads Vehicle accidents are always an issue, um, falling snags, uh, burnovers. So that, that, that idea that individuals are now in this uh, almost 24 seven year after year, we've really started seeing it accelerate in 2000 and now for 2001, uh, it's without a doubt that that's how people are living their lives. Whereas in uh, municipal fire departments, um, a, a fire station might get a call, they're, they're four minutes en route to the emergency and they have the, the emergency stabilized within about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, that's simply just not the case for wildland firefighters. We are in it 24 seven, week after week, month after month, and now we're talking year after year. So it really is significantly different. The environment that we're asking people to work in is significantly uh, very, very uh, hard on people, physically, mentally, and emotionally, and that's really what we have to address. Right. So earlier this year, a firefighter, Tim Hart, was killed on 
due to injuries he sustained on a fire here in New Mexico. And after his death, I remember seeing a GoFundMe campaign to help his family um, dealing with the expenses due to his hospitalization. And I just remember thinking he was a federal employee working on a, on a federal fire. Um, what kinds of, how, how are firefighters taken care of when they sustain injuries or unfortunate accidents like this? So, so that's kind of the reality of the situation. There's an organization that was started roughly 20 years ago called the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Um, and really that organization was the catalyst and it's all charity donations from basically wildland firefighters supporting each other. So I would say recently land management agencies have started to do a better job. I would give credit there, but I would say starting to. And, and we're seeing where they're not being able to cover, you know, these GoFundMe and the Wildland Firefighter Foundation cover Tim's family to be able to travel down be able to cover mortgage and bills when he's in a tough position in a hospital, any of our firefighters, be able to help the family make it through because these, these families that we have basically depend on us being firefighters and us going and, and working and being away from home for six months out of the year. So as soon as that money's gone, there's no, there's no base, there's no help for the family. So uh, long-term sort of medical care, I know the Wildland Firefighter Foundation has bought uh, wheelchairs has helped rehab and and the reality of why we need this is our OWCP bro program the Office of Workman's Comp is broken uh, we have firefighters struggling that get injured on the job struggling year after year to basically just survive these catastrophic incidents they have with mountains of paperwork very little help from the federal government and basically it's easier to just get outside donations to to make it through Jonathan, you were a wildland firefighter for over a decade. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the private struggles that wildland firefighters are going through that, you know, we in the public just have no idea these things are happening. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, thanks again for the opportunity to be here. Um, some of the private struggles that, you know, I went through and I, I know my um, friends have gone through are just, the isolation um, that you feel and the separation you have from your friends, from your families back home, um, the the events that you miss out on, birthdays, weddings, graduations. Um, I, I even know of, uh, you know, husbands and partners that were uh, on, I was on fire with while their wife delivered, you know, their, their children. Um, and you miss out on these uh, significant moments. And, you know, when, when it comes time to lay down at night um, and, and, and try to get some sleep, um, you know, you think about these things um, and it really begins to to weigh on you. What am I missing out on? You know, what am I doing here? Um, I know uh, when I started to have a family with my wife, it just became um, no longer sustainable for us uh, or realistic for us to, but, you know, potentially move uh, our whole family um, across the country in order for me to chase a you know promotional opportunity uh, to effectively actually have more responsibility and be and be gone a lot more um, and so you know when that goes on um, uh, you know it becomes a real struggle and sometimes 
were able to successfully um, bury or suppress those memories. But, um, you know, it comes out in the wintertime. Uh, people turn to alcohol or drugs. Um, we've lost, uh, you know, partners and friends to suicide from it all. And, and so it's a real problem within the community that um, frankly isn't, I think, talked about enough and or addressed um, as best as it could be. So I think the public, you know, we very much have this perception of, of wildland firefighters. When our communities are at risk, you know, people go out there with signs and want to bake cookies and drop off water and are, are so grateful when, when y'all arrive. Um, but it really feels to me that there's this disconnect between what we, the public, think you all are going through and, and what is actually happening. And I'm curious, how are you supported by these federal agencies that we all pay taxes to um, and, and are you know, imagining that you're being supported? Is there support for things like depression or PTSD or anxiety or helping address this work-life balance that seems to be a problem? I would say those are catch words that the agency, different agency leadership have thrown out there, work-life balance. But the reality, Laura, is that these programs are, are anemic at best. And so I would be remiss to say that there's no help. We do have uh, help networks, but I myself have tried to look into them. Like for me as a first responder to, to seek help on a particular kind of issue, like there's no counselors in my area that specialize in that, that are within that program. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people have faced with. It's very difficult to find mental health help on there. It's very difficult to uh, go through the program and really you only get like five to seven visits and then it's on you. So a very weak support network. And like I was saying with the temporary employees, as soon as they're laid off, they basically have no access to this. So when you're in that transition time, like like Johnny's talking about, end of the season, you go away from your fire family, now you're turning to alcohol and drugs to, to hit those voids, you're, you're very angry with the world, I would say. It's, it's really kind of when I see these war movies of people coming back from Vietnam or, or, or war and trying to like reintegrate into society, that's really what people go through on a yearly cyclical basis of, of being totally immersed in a, in a war type setting away from all your support network and then you come back to try to integrate and and so i would say it's very poor and i think it's a known issue and and folks are working on it but at a very slow rate to really make a significant change i would say we need more money we need better programs we need more support so speaking of change i'd like to talk a little bit about climate change um let's start with you kelly um fires 35 years ago compared with the fires we're seeing now. How has climate change um, affected the fire season and, and the wildland firefighters who have to deal with fire season? Think about the environment that we're working in now and, and how different that was when I first started. So climate change is certainly a, a contributing factor, especially when we look at you know, significantly higher temperatures, longer fire seasons, so we can actually measure that. So we know that that's actually occurring. The, the other thing that's occurring is this unnatural fuel buildup. If you can imagine from one moment, the Western United States was very void of people about 150 years ago. So quote unquote, the good fire or the friendly fire was allowed to play its natural role on the landscape uh, for millennia. And here we come and we occupy the West 
at, at tremendous numbers. California used to have uh, 1.5 million people in 1900, and now they're up to 40 million. So we're seeing this play out where not only is climate change adding to these large mega fires, but we're also seeing the unnatural field buildup because of the suppression uh, of wildfires on the landscape, um, it, which is increasing the, the fuel loading and the vegetation and, and, and also increasing the insect disease and, and drought susceptibility to trees that are on the landscape and adding to the population explosion. So it's really putting our firefighters in a really untenable situation, uh, especially these last 24 months. Um, this is really should portend to all of us what the years are gonna look like in the years to come. And we cannot keep operating uh, under the same antiquated system that we developed 50 years ago. So we're really in need of a transformation um, of our wildland fire workforce and what that looks like going forward is gonna be, should be very different um, than when I first started. So those are the things that are really contributing to um, what we're seeing now with these, with these large, large wildfires. Mm -hmm. So speaking of transformation, Jonathan, as part of your volunteer work for grassroots wildland firefighters, you're looking at how some policy changes and legislative fixes could make things better for this workforce. Um, let's start with Congress. What could Congress be doing? And then maybe what are some of the policy changes that federal agencies might implement? Yeah, so <clears throat> this year we're seeing actually um, alignment between uh, both the, the administration and Congress and really beginning to um, address the needs of uh, wildland firefighters and um, everything that's happening out west. Um, yeah, we're seeing with the, the infrastructure package that there is language and provisions in there that will begin to address um, you know, a salary increase um, as well as uh, classification um, for wildland firefighters to no longer be uh, forestry technicians, but uh, actual wildland firefighters. But really um, some of the lesser known things that are in there uh, begin uh, with like a foothold, if you will, on um, beginning to address mental health issues, um, which we were just talking about recently. And that's in the, um, infrastructure package um, you know this is just a you know a kind of a, a nice uh, secondary step to the administration's increase um, with uh, the $15 an hour starting wage um, we need to take more steps um, Congress should be uh, working with the land management agencies to provide them the funds that they need to you know help to fund uh, the the kind of land management uh, and ecosystem management that begins to address the current reality and the future conditions, uh, much like uh, Kelly was talking about, um, because that's directly related to um, our firefighters' working conditions, their health and their well-being. Um, I mean, a salary increase is nice, but uh, to have these um, policy changes um, and have Congress working hand in hand with the land management agencies to begin to build the 21st century um, civilian um, you know, civil service that America deserves is is really what needs to be done. I mean, there, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken. Fire suppression is just one chunk of it, but, you know, actually setting realistic and, and, and land management targets is, is a whole other part of it as well. So it sounds like Congress is um, thinking about some of these issues. I'm curious from each of you, 
what you wish your congressional delegation truly understood about the conditions and the need for this sort of professionalization of this workforce. You want to start, Marcus? Sure. I, I think the message for me is that we're headed for a train wreck, Laura. And this is a train wreck of like uh, what Kelly was talking about, increasing fire size and complexity. You know, the Cerro Grande fire, when it happened in 2000, was a huge fire for New Mexico. It was the biggest fire in the books. And now that thing's been dwarfed many times over with Los Conchas, Whitewater, Baldy, you name it. And we're just waiting for the next one, essentially. So our workload is increasing. We're having a hard time filling jobs in remote duty locations. Uh, and part of this is paying benefits. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we would have four or 500 applicants for an entry-level fire job on some of the crews I worked on. Now we're lucky if we see 50. So with those kind of numbers, we're headed to a train wreck where one time there's going to be a town here in New Mexico that's going to call for federal assistance, federal help, and guess what? Nobody's going to show up because that fire, local fire engine's not staffed. The incident management team doesn't have team members on it to actually come and address a, a huge catastrophic wildfire. So we're headed to a train wreck. And, and really, we need to work on how we start piecing that together like Johnny was talking about. We really need to ask the question, what do we want this wildland fire service to look like in 10, 20, 30 years when we know there's not a question of a doubt that, that this is going to continue on and it's unsustainable. So how are we going to address uh, classifying them as wildland firefighters? How are we going to get them the right mental, mental and physical help to be healthy, uh, really tactical athletes, which is what they are throughout the, the summer season? And, and for me, a big part of this, honestly, is maybe trying to think outside the box. Because as Kelly mentioned, this box was built 50, 60 years ago in a very different environment. I'd say both environmentally, politically, culturally, and that box is not sustainable. So maybe it's a national fire service where we get rid of some of these redundancies. We make a more efficient system. We, we kind of like take some of the politics out of it, hopefully and really give the American taxpayer what they deserve, an efficient, professional wildland fire service that's going to be there when they call for that emergency. And those are things I'd like to see. How about you, Kelly? I really think that there's a, there's a real, there has to be a real recognition by the public and the taxpayers that this current system that we're talking about, again, built 50 years ago, is unsustainable. There is no more capacity in our current system um, for salaries, for additional people. And so we are gonna have to go to the American people and the taxpayers and ask for more money, um, not just for suppression, but for land management. Uh, and it's not just the federal government. We really need to partner with the states. There's a lot of areas out there that are gonna need infrastructure development uh, to deal with not just logs on trucks, but also with the, the uh, excessive fuel buildup and creating a demand for uh, this natural resource that we call biomass, which is a lot of vegetation on the landscape. Um, so developing that locally, I think, is a, is a real key and having a partnership between state governments and federal governments to address this issue on a long-term basis. Again, 25 to 50 years out, 10 years isn't going to cut it. Uh, we really have to think this is a long game, this is long-term, uh, and we need some real novel uh, uh, ideas and visions about um, what healthy landscapes look like because right now we are losing so much carbon stock on the landscape to these large fires 
Uh, and, and people need to know we cannot keep suppressing fires in perpetuity. We have to be progressive with applying good fire on the landscape as well. Uh, and where we can, we can use that biomass uh, to really support local communities. And I think we can really put um, local people, uh, youth to work uh, on the landscape for healthier, more resilient landscapes because of climate change, uh, increasing fire seasons and expanding uh, population base. Um, so I think there's, there's really good opportunities for a lot of, um, if there's the political will and there's the social will to do this, not only the will, but the demand really has to come from the, from the people, the constituents of all the, the states to say, you know, we want to see this partnership between the Forest Service and the federal government and our state governments to actually work uh, on our behalf so that we have healthy landscapes for our kids and our grands grandkids. And Jonathan, what about you? What, what do you wish the congressional delegation would better understand about what you all need and what's at risk if these changes aren't implemented? Right. So I guess um, I would I would hope that it's impressed upon them that this isn't a regional or any one state issue. Um, this is a national issue. Um, you're feeling the impacts from smoke um, from these wildfires all the way you know, in the nation's capital and it's degrading air quality and it's, uh, you know, subjecting sensitive populations to more risk uh, from the degraded air quality. Um, you know, the other thing that comes to mind is that um, if we lose our capacity to manage our lands, um, we also lose our capacity to do other things like protect critical watersheds that you know countless uh, cities towns municipalities depend on um, we lose the ability to you know harvest timber to to build infrastructure to rebuild um, towns and cities and and so really it's it, it's becoming just a, a a large issue that doesn't belong to any one state it's not a california issue it's not a new mexico issue i mean it's really a whole a whole national issue. And I guess what I'd like to see is uh, Congress, um, you know, appropriate and authorize uh, more funding uh, to the land management agencies to expand the workforce needed to uh, obtain attain these land management targets that they set. You know, maybe think outside of the box like Kelly and Marcus were talking about and offer like land management scholarships or tuition assistance for, you know, college students who study in certain fields and, and want to develop or devote some of their time rather um, to land management issues. Um, so I, I think that there are creative ways uh, that we could expand our workforce and really focus on these issues. Um, and I, I just hope that Congress is, is paying attention to the land management agencies and also their constituents and the states that are uh, in, impacted by all of this. So we're talking about like trying to envision something different, thinking outside the box. There are other places that do things differently. And you were in Australia for that really awful fire season in 2019 and learned some lessons there. I'm curious what you learned about wildland firefighting in Australia that, that could be implemented here in the US maybe. I think some of the things that I was kind of really taken aback with, you know, we have sort of similar systems that, that intermingle easily with the way we structure our incident management teams and our fires. But I, I think they had, re the state of Victoria in particular, because they don't have a federal system like us, so it's by state, so we'll make that clear. 
and and they have a large volunteer service as well that that uh, works on a lot of their wildland fire but for the state employees in, in particular they really recognized they needed more flexibility you know a known issue in our in our wildland firefighters is really the lack of diversity and the lack of representation by say women people of color you name it and and part of that is really that that workforce flexibility so i saw in australia you know here a standard tour is 14 can be up to 21 used to be longer uh, and with travel days, you could be away from home for 21, 30 days even potentially. There I saw a mother with kids who was an incident commander, a rather high ranking incident commander, would come for five days and said, I have to take care of my kids on the weekends, would drive back to her house, would be there three or four days and come back for four or five days. And it was really an, an, an kind of eye-opening picture for me. And you would talk to, to our firefighters about, oh, that will never work, this or that. And it's really those kind of things where I think we need to really think, how are we treating firefighters? Why do we not have many women like Kelly who advanced all the way? You know, a lot of women want families and it's very difficult for men or women to have families. You saw that's why, why John got out. Uh, and, and so we need to think about how are we gonna take care of that employee as a whole and not just kind of use them as temporary fodder that we feed to the system and then kick them out. But how are we taking care of that employee as a whole? And I think Australia is really on to some of those things. They pay some increased stipend and on-call benefits, which we don't pay in the United States. So all of our federal firefighters, pretty much you're on call unless you're on rest and relaxation for a couple of days after a tour. And that means you're on unpaid call. Your, your travel is restricted. You can't necessarily go and do certain things. You have to be within a certain amount from your fire base. And we don't compensate anybody for any of that, which Australia does, which I thought, well, that's a great idea. You're compensating people for that time, compensating people for working in remote areas because they were facing the same thing that we're starting to face where they couldn't get folks, you know, to, to live in their remote, remote duty stations. And so they recognized, hey, we probably need to compensate those folks more so their families can have a decent life out in a re remote rural area. And so, there's novel ways out there if we, if we kind of can open our eyes and, and really think about those things, yeah. Well, thank you, all three of you, so much for this conversation. I have learned so much, and I really appreciate your time and your energy on this topic. Thank you so much for having us, Laura. I think this is an issue. It's important to New Mexico. It's important to the United States, and I appreciate your time and interest. Thanks. Thanks. See you yeah, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, we got another great line panel for you this week as well. It includes regular Dee Feldman, a former state senator. Also, Dan McKay, a political reporter at the Albuquerque Journal. Always love to have Dan here. And we welcome back Crystal Ciarza of Ciarza, Ciarza Digital. Uh, and we've got a great slate of topics for them that they tackled this week. And we'll start with... Uh, really a lot of uh, things involved with law enforcement here in the state. You may have seen a fair bit of headlines lately about folks talking about how the uh, here in Albuquerque, the APD DOJ consent decree, which has been in place for several years now, is uh, now being talked about in terms of hampering the reform efforts and forcing officers to retire uh, because of decreased morale uh, and uh, just really splintering the efforts there. Uh, and actually this week, the Department of Justice 
issued uh, some changes to how they will do these consent decrees to try to uh, help um, reform processes. So even they acknowledge it's not a perfect process, uh, but is that really all that's behind the officer shortage? And how do we know how many officers, for instance, here in Albuquerque we need? Most folks keep pointing to 1,200, uh, which we had been building towards before the last year, which had all kinds of complications, whether it was morale or COVID or you name it. Uh, so we wanted to get their thoughts on that. Here's host Gene Grant and the line. How many officers or deputies are enough? The governor wants to put 1,000 new officers on the streets around New Mexico. Albuquerque always seems to be measuring itself against 1,200, a goal. It's more than 200 officers away from right now. And why are those jobs hard to fill? Is it the criminal element, the heavy hand of the feds, the culture of some departments? The Line Opinion panel is here to talk through those questions and others. From the Albuquerque Journal, political reporter Dan McKay returns, as does Crystal Ciarza. She's owner and CEO of Ciarza's Social Digital. Former state senator and line regular Didi Feldman is back for another turn as well. I want to start with Albuquerque, guys, and with a key subset of that group of sworn officers, the ones on patrol. The city has 959 sworn officers now, not including supervisors. The Albuquerque Journal reported Sunday there are 404 patrol officers, less than half the force. Crystal, I think that gives a lot of people pause. Is that efficient? Does it feel efficient? Is the department doing a good job of explaining why that's the case? Because something's disconnected here. I'm interested in your take. It's, it's a, a very, very challenging, sore topic that I think many people in our community, including in the state of New Mexico, are very, very sad and, and, and the topic has run its course. Mm -hmm. um, it is a little, uh, a little alarming in terms of the, the 400 that you had just mentioned. I think one of the things that, um, you know, and, and I know that we're going to get to the topic of the DOJ investigation. Mm -hmm. I remember when it first, you know, hit the headlines on a national scale that we were being reprimanded by the Dep Department of Justice um, for the use of excessive force. And now here we are implementing some of the requests and changes. And even Chief Medina had, had discussed about how cumbersome a lot of these processes and procedures are mm -hmm. um, and, and is accounting for a lot of the departures because of the fact that, you know, he had said himself, uh, and I'm abbreviating his his kind of quotation about how the subject itself is is cumbersome, and it's 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 almost um, uh, cumbersome is the best word to kind of describe how he's saying. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely necessary because of the fact that it's it's a Department of Justice investigation, mm -hmm. um, and and the microcosm of crime does include you know the Department of, in New Mexico specifically does include you know the resignations and terminations saying that. Uh, in 2021, as of August 31st, 101 retirements, resignations, and terminations, according to the Albuquerque Journal and the Albuquerque Police Department, mm -hmm. 939 numbers by the officers of the fiscal year. Um, it's an interesting, interesting take, especially as the elections are coming up, um, especially since crime is the number one subject that elections have. Um, so it's it's a it's one of those conversations that it, I know that this is jam-packed time, and I want to toss it back. Like it's. It's something that's it seems so impossible to solve. Mm -hmm. so. That can be an overriding feeling when things don't improve. Um, Senator, the U.S. Attorney General that Crystal just announced, uh, mentioned announced this week that he's rethinking how monitors will and should oversee reform efforts at problem departments like Albuquerque's. Now, there's certainly room for improvement. Everybody knows that. But APD has had some notable misses in its reform. And however much the city is paying for a monitor, it's millions less than what it was paying in civil settlements, uh, Senator, which is 
about 28 million before this all started. So uh, kind of a long question there, but um, are we getting our money's worth out of this? No, mm -hmm. I don't think we are getting our money's worth. And, and the, the police are um, spending a lot of time investigating the use of force um, incidents. And that takes time away from patrol. That takes time away from uh, the other kinds of preventive, mm -hmm. uh, preventive activities uh, that the police need to do in order to get a handle on this, just being visible in neighborhoods. Uh, reaching out to people who are victims of a cycle of violence, uh, preventing retaliation for crimes that have already happened. Mm -hmm. um, but remember, the, um, uh, the, uh, these investigations and this, um, this uh, federal order did not come out of nowhere. Right. It came out of James Boyd. That's right. And it came out of a lot of abuses of the mm -hmm. use of force. So we can't just, and as you said, there were uh, millions, in millions of dollars that the city spent in settling with the victims of police brutality, mm -hmm. essentially. And so we can't, uh, we can't let that be forgotten. Uh, the cult culture change is always difficult within a police department. I think that's what we're seeing now. And I think that's why there's a lot of retirements, a lot of people uh, going, uh, going away early. That's right. Um, but uh, we need to remember there is no ideal of 1,200 policemen to, for, to make it safe in Albuquerque. Right. Uh, it depends upon what the police do. Mm -hmm. how they spend their time and uh we and how many and how many are on the streets at any one given time all 1200 are not out there so you know it's 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 an interesting number we uh, got to dan here real quick i mentioned the state push for more officers and albuquerque's push of course when the journal your colleague elise kaplan and your other colleague colleen healed took a look at staffing on sunday they pointed out that during mayor marty chavez's big hiring push the department took on a number of officers who then became big problems in the use of force cases, as a senator mentioned. Any sense of whether APD has solved that conundrum of keeping standards high while also finding officers that can make the grade? Yeah, I think that's a, a difficult balance. Um, you know, uh, law enforcement agencies throughout New Mexico, including Albuquerque, have budgeted for a certain number of officers. Um, uh, and it makes, uh, you know, legislators or city councilors uh, feel good that no, well, our budget includes money for X number of officers, but right. um, actually finding that many qualified, credentialed people uh, um, uh, to serve has been difficult. You know, it's not just a matter of setting aside the money to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the I, I know Albuquerque has has struggled and and um, debated pretty intensely what standards to have for police officers. Is it necessary that they have? Um, a college degree? Is it, uh, you know, an associate's mm -hmm. degree? Should they take a certain number of classes in college? Um, uh, but certainly, uh, you know, the the answer that policymakers are dealing with here is uh, not just to expand police forces, but to make sure that they're they're done in, in a sustainable way with the, the right number of people or with the right kind of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you said, uh, former Mayor Martin Chavez did did face some criticism for you know, he succeeded in expanding the police department, but then, uh, you know, some of those officers were involved in police shootings and, mm -hmm. 
you know, other high profile incidents that, that ended up uh, involving, you know, the federal a federal investigation. Were you on the city hall beat or the county beat at that time, Dan? Were you remembering that correctly? Yes. I thought so, yeah. It's a, where does this 1200 number come from? How, how is this so, you know, firm and cement now in our consciousness here in Albuquerque? It started with Mayor Marty. What was going on back then that made this 1200 number so fixated for us? Gangs. Gangs. Gangs? Gang okay. violence. Uh, that was going on, I think, it, Dan, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, that was right when I was running for office, and that was a big problem, juvenile gangs. Yeah, Albuquerque has always had a, car, a high crime rate as, as long as I've been around, and it has always been, um, you know, the top issue or one of the top issues at City Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 1200 number, you know, there's, there's debate about whether that is... Um, about where that number comes from. There have been staffing studies, um, but also, uh, you know, I, I think the, the amount you budget for, uh, I, I don't necessarily put a lot of, you know, I, I don't necessarily put a lot of stock in 1200 as the number that they put in their budget. You know, the, the really important number to me is the number of officers they actually have employed. Um, and Albuquerque has been seeing an increase in officers uh, on the force uh for the last few years mm-hmm. um but there's been a blip this year so we we had been on the increase you know making steady progress toward a larger police force um and then it dipped this year so mm-hmm. um the factors in that uh you know are a little difficult to untangle but um it's clear that policymakers want more officers whatever the number is whether right. they get to 1200 or not that's right yeah Crystal, Gene, to kind uh, of go ahead, we're, go under, ahead. T- we're under two minutes so just be a little crisp that'd be good mm-hmm. Go ahead, Crystal. Oh, so, you know, going back to the myth of 1,200, uh, 1200 officers, mm-hmm. so, there, you know, the Center of Public Safety Management, a study was conducted, um, a, a private LLC, a consulting firm for, for law enforcement, had said, you know, the recommended officers per 1,000 population, and at the time when Mayor Chavez was elected, that's most likely where the number came from, because we were not under, we were in between that awkward phrase of just shy of a million in the greater metro area, mm-hmm. and so I think that's where that 1,200 number came from. I I think one of the things we have to talk about, though, is that this culture shift and culture change, and I want to overemphasize that because the Asian Business Collaborative, where I'm volunteer executive director, um, we've spoken to APD several times and the community policing um, and, and really targeting and showing support to various different groups has been such a culture shift that we're not taking into consideration as a part of the shortage as well, because a lot of, for example, um, they have certain officers that are, are dealing with the Asian community, Black community, Hispanics, um, those that are more relatable from it, uh, officers that could be more relatable to these communities that need assistance in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Taking away to, to a niche uh, type of police force means more narrow scope of work which means less people to do the larger, more important things in the world. Uh, We applaud, you know, the Asian community applauds this effort, but at the same time, we understand that the culture has to change in order to feel, to make the city feel safer. Good points there. You can bet we'll have more to discuss in future episodes. The line returns in a bit to talk about another job that's been hard to fill, teachers. And another long-standing problem now, we wanted to get some thoughts from the line opinion panel. That is 
especially early childhood education. We've really faced a bit of a teacher shortage in New Mexico across the board for several years and are working on all of that. And uh, the state just released this week a plan to try to increase the pay for early childhood educators in hopes of getting more people into that field and keeping them there as well. And so we wanted to dive into that topic. Um, And this also carries over into educational assistants who we know have taken a more prominent role in many classrooms across the state. So plenty of great stuff to talk about here. Let's kick it right back to host Gene Grant. New Mexico has tried all sorts of remedies to its perennially low performance by students and schools. It's a problem the state isn't done trying to solve, and two parts of the big push in the past couple of decades are more early childhood education, as you know, and more educational professionals in the classroom to help students. The idea behind a pair of recent announcements is to make educational jobs more attractive. Let's start with early childhood education. The state wants to put qualified early childhood educators on the same pay scale as teachers. The money the state is putting forward to the program might be enough for 200 earners. And Senator Feldman, does this seem like a fully formed policy, more of a trial effort, or kind of looking down at the future at the horizon and a a pretty good idea? Where do you you fall on this? Well, I don't know whether it would have happened, but for the federal funds. Right. Uh, But it's a a good pilot program. Mm -hmm. And we've known for many years that the salaries for early childhood folks and 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 every every academic study shows that these are the formative years Mm -hmm. this is going to determine whether kids know how to read by third grade every study shows um that and yet we pay our early childhood workers ten dollars an hour eleven dollars an hour no benefits uh part-time work um you know it's it's just it's been a disgrace it's really been a disgrace and and the legislature has been trying to focus on this uh, for the past yep. um, decade. That's right. Really. Uh, and uh, this year we're going to get an opportunity to uh, vote on whether to spend more money from the permanent fund uh, for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it, it's a tough road to hoe. Uh, people don't seem to want to put in this uh, put in this money uh, mm-hmm. and this time into um, into supporting early childhood education. Um, and, you know, there's, there's let, been- let me, let, me, let me interrupt for a quick second, Senator, um, before I get to Crystal here with another question. Are we past the partisanship of early childhood education right now? Uh, it's both Democrats and Republicans are on board with this. Uh, yes, seemingly. but you see, there's the question of whether the early childhood education should do- be done by the private sector or whether it should be um, uh, an adjunct of the public schools. Gotcha. And there you get a little bit of partisan divide Mm -hmm. in there. Gotcha. Crystal, have we seen results from what's been invested in early childhood education since the mid-2000s? Anything tangible there we can all point at and say, this is the way we gotta go, guys? there is so if you were to use like my son as a perfect example has there been advances as as he you know he was born in 2008 and where he is now Mm -hmm. the early childhood education challenges are still the same 
Um, and it has been a, a very difficult piece for, for all of us to tackle. Um, I remember joining Kiwanis, which uh, Kiwanis Clubs of Albuquerque, early childhood education is, is such a proponent part, but it comes back to affordability. Mm. It comes back to the quality of the curriculum, the quality of teachers, et cetera, and to kind of fall back onto the conversation about the minimum wage increase. Um, even though I'm a small business owner and I know how difficult minimum wage increases can be, mm -hmm. anything that's state government related can be very difficult to increase the minimum wage because then, yes, I understand that Olay, for example, in the story from the New Mexico Political Report, they're saying that Olay is pushing for $400 billion for child care programs and a federal infrastructure bill that will help child care workers earn at least $15 an hour. There are some mental health therapists that don't even receive $15 an That's hour. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so it, and so the conversation about federally funded is incredibly difficult. And then you have to talk about if it even goes back to privatization for, for early childhood education, the business costs will start to go up. Then it gets passed on to the individual parent or the families themselves, and they can't even afford it to begin with. Mm -hmm. We've got to find a better way for public-private partnerships in order to increase early childhood education. And most importantly, go back to, uh, and this goes back to what Representative Kate Bonkua, the new representative, goes back to. If you're trying to solve a policy issue when it comes to education, it's got to be related back to the community. What can we do for our communities to help them be a part of the culture change of early childhood education while going back to the teachers? The teachers need to be a part of that conversation, which they're often excluded from, period. Point there. The other investment, Dan McKay, is in teaching assistants. Notoriously hard jobs to fill. They pay very little. So the plan is to take $37 million to offer pay for 500 assistants this year and then give them up to 4000 bucks a year to start a degree program for themselves. Uh, and it's called the New Mexico Teacher Fellows Program, to be official about it. Uh, does this make sense to you in your gut? Uh, well, I think it's a strategy that, that the um, state is, is going to try. I think um, it, I, policymakers have tried something similar with police officers, mm. you know, seizing on um, service aides mm -hmm. to try to uh, use that as a pipeline to get into law enforcement careers. Uh, I think naturally, you know, it does make some some sense that you'd start with someone, uh, a teaching assistant who is, uh, uh, or an education assistant who is already interested in education, already working with students, already has some idea of classroom dynamics. I think it certainly makes sense that those are people you uh, might target to increase, uh, you know, to address our teacher shortages. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we'll see. I mean, uh, you know, as it, this is kind of a recurring theme. You know, New Mexico is struggling with shortages in certain professions, um, you know, doctors, educators, police officers. Um, and this is a, a tool to, to, to see if we can address the teacher shortage. Mm -hmm. Senator, you know, one of the important things to note here is the state hopes that districts who get these fellows we're talking about as part of the program will not just take a free teacher's assistant, but use some of their own money that the state's going to give them to boost pay seems to me that's almost a must-do for this thing to work, as Dan just related. I mean, we have a history of if something's going to get better, you have to put better pay on the table. Are, are we at that point where we all just fundamentally understand that now? And you have to have community involvement, as Crystal right. said. I, I really, you know, I agree with that. And I, I think also if you go to any school, teach, uh, teaching assistants are already an important part of that school community. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are, they're doing a lot. Uh, we heard from them every year um, 
asking for more uh, asking for more money but if you go to any school if you go to any school you will encounter and see teachers assistants and see what they're doing with the kids and it's very important sometimes mm -hmm. they're the ones that the kids relate to the most mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a consistency there with the assistants knowing a few teachers when you don't have that consistency it's a problem um, Crystal, you know, New Mexico didn't lose as many teachers to retirement last year as was expected from the pandemic, but the state says districts were still short some 600 teachers last year. Seems clear teaching has lost an attraction as a solid job with good security, maybe some enviable time off, all those things that used to be, you know, are these the kind of programs that make a difference or is there something fundamentally undesirable about, about a career in the classroom anymore? Well, if you're asking me about incentives in the workplace to keep your employees there, that's a hard battle you're going to fight with me. But I mm -hmm. think one of the things that teachers also had play had had a problem with is safety and security in the classrooms because of COVID. I mean, we, we, we don't even have to tackle that conversation because I think that's the next segment. Right. And so um, teachers, of course, you know, if, if you ask a teacher, like, what are some of the things that they have to deal with on, on a daily basis? It might be the external factors of what actually happens in the classroom that keeps us keeps them motivated um, to stay or encourages them to get out of the classroom. So, for example, you're talking about how do, how do we improve uh, early childhood education? But you know what? Every, everyone, ha everyone has a line financially. You can put up with a lot when you're getting paid. Sure, 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 sure. most definitely. But mm -hmm. re remember, pay doesn't matter if the child still doesn't go to the classroom. Right. You know, a lot of the districts are losing money because of the fact that kids are just simply not returning to school and truancy rates and graduation rates are suffering. Mm -hmm. A lot of those problematic issues, I've always said this about early childhood education is that a lot of the issues that happen in the classroom actually happen at home. And so if we're gonna tackle the conversation of teacher shortages, early childhood education, et cetera, we have to tackle the challenges that happen at home and encourage a positive environment in terms of teaching kids in schools. Mm -hmm. So. Good point there to finish. Have to leave it there, but our opinion panel has one more turn this week. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk about the latest COVID news. We'll have much more with the line in our next episode coming out on Monday, the 20th. But before we go, I want to leave you with a bit of extra that you won't see in the on-air show on New Mexico PBS this week. It's part of our weekly warm-up where we get uh, all of our juices flowing, get the technical kinks worked out, and sort of find out what else is on the mind of our line panelists from the week that was that we just don't have time in the show. And as usual, lots of good stuff here from a resurgence with a question mark of UNM Athletics. Football team's off to a 2-0 start. Got a big matchup this week with Texas A&M in College Station, so that'll be a tough test for sure. But there does seem to be some energy there for sure. Also, uh, we uh, are talking about the uh, surprise, somewhat of a surprise announcement that longtime lawmaker Debbie Armstrong will not run again next year. Dee Dee Feldman got a lot of great thoughts on that, having worked with uh, Debbie Armstrong in the past, and Dan McKay about sort of the political tenor of things right now, which we know are difficult. So really good stuff here, and we'll uh, send you off with that this week. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, you might know we like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. Uh, Senator Dee Feldman, always good to have you and you have a, 
I'm going to ask you a couple questions after you do your one more thing. What's your one more thing this week? Well, my one more thing is um, how sad I am to see Representative Debbie Armstrong oh, retire right. from the New Mexico House. Mm -hmm. um, not only is she, is she representing part of the North Valley near where I live, and that was part of my district, mm -hmm. uh, but she's a very uh, close friend and somebody I admire very much for all she has accomplished and what she has done, both inside and outside of the legislature. Um, she's now head of the Health and Human Services Committee, but that's just one thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, dating back decades, uh, she was um, the head of the long-term uh, services department, which was created uh, during, um, uh, during the first years, I think, of the Richardson administration, and she became the head. Mm -hmm. uh, she had been a champion of people in nursing homes for a long time. Um, and, um, you know, as the head of the long-term services division, she advocated with her daughter, Erin, um, for medical marijuana mm. and for the compassionate treatment of people with, with cancer. She really changed the dialogue when it came to marijuana. Uh, and we passed, <clears throat> a conservative Senate almost unanimously passed uh, medical marijuana in uh, 2007 due to her efforts. And um, she, of course, her, her longtime concern is getting more New Mexicans health care insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, she was the point person for implementing um, the Affordable Care Act in New Mexico um, in uh, 2011. Uh, she knew how to set up a health insurance exchange uh, and she knew how to use federal funds to increase our rural health care uh, workers, which we desperately need. And um, throughout it all, she, uh, she was uh, involved with what they call the high-risk pool, which is a, an outgrowth of an effort during the 1970s, believe it or not, when people with uh, parents with uh, kids with disabilities could not get insurance they could not get insurance for their children and they could and couldn't and for the whole family um and so this this pool was established uh negotiating with uh, insurance companies in order to do that she's a good negotiator she's negotiated for lower prescription drug prices she has has many accomplishments, many of them in her very quiet, determined, organized way mm -hmm. uh, that New Mexicans didn't know too much about, but which are so important to everyday people. So I'm sorry to see her to go. And I'm also a little wary uh, since this is uh, redistricting uh, uh, coming up. Uh, here very quickly in December, and you know it's it's a dangerous to say you're not running again uh, before the redistricting session because who who knows your district might be carved up if uh, adjacent districts need more population. That's so a fair point. So I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a fair point. That's interesting because nature abhors a vacuum, as they say. So we'll see what happens there. <laughs> Um, Crystal Ciarza, always glad to have you, always. You're the owner, of course, of Ciarza Social Media. What's your one more thing this week? 
Hi, Jean. Um, I know that I am probably picking one of the most controversial topics in New Mexico PBS history, which is siding over the UNM Lobos versus the NMSU Aggies. <laughs> I have big. a funny feeling Matt, Matt Grubbs is going to press the cancel button on me here pretty soon. So, um, I, you know, and the reason why I decided to talk to them is because not just because, you know, am, am I, um, I call myself an honorary Lobo from teaching there, mm -hmm. even though I didn't graduate from there. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the really fascinating things about this is, um, you know, a, a very good lesson in um, operational management in sports economy, in the sports economy, and um, a really good lesson on um, really strong leadership in, in terms of athletics. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, Eddie Nunez was hired in 2017 to really reformat the entire UNM athletics after, you know, the uh, massive investigative cases that had happened um, with the UNM Foundation, et cetera. But um, we're finally starting to see the fruits of his labor in terms of changing the mindset and the mentality of not only hiring coaches like Danny Gonzalez on football that they're 2-0 and and just beat the Aggies over the weekend. Mm -hmm. um, but what's really fascinating is that the football culture has changed. The basketball culture has changed, which has been such a core hiring um, the coach formerly from Minnesota, Coach Patino. Um, and, and people are forgetting, uh, used to forget about the other sports like women's golf, men's golf, um, mm -hmm. soccer, obviously we don't have a men's team, but the women's soccer team is, is so iconic right now, um, especially with um, the special technical, uh, the, the coach of the women's golf team or women's soccer team is now the technical assistant or technical consultant for New Mexico United. Um, I think it brings a really strong message of athletics in New Mexico can go back to, to a time where we look at our homegrown talent. We look at our, our local high schools or our statewide high schools, and we're having really phenomenal kids coming out of our um, our local areas or our local municipalities and actually making these phenomenal teams at New Mexico. And they're winning. That is a culture change that we haven't had in years. <laughs> um, and so that's a really big plus. And, and I think that also to, to bring this more from a statewide level, you know, um, for those that might not know that Eastern New Mexico University and Western New Mexico University are D2, D3, and even D4. Um, some of them in other areas might be D4 schools. Mm -hmm. This gives them an opportunity to either move up or it's time for Eastern and Western to actually increase their profile from an athletics perspective because New Mexico as a state and even NMSU, right? NMSU has always been in the shadows of UTEP for so long in the, in the, um, on the D1 arena. And so now it's time for all of our colleges to actually rise up to the occasion, occasion and uh, if not rebrand or lift up the brand and build up that hype that New Mexico sports is here to stay. And not only is it here to stay, we win championships. And, I, and I'm really excited to see um, where the Lobos are going, where the rest of our um, sports community is going. Um, at some point in time, I would love to see kickball as a, a collegiate sport, but I know that's that's just an inside <laughs> joke, I guess you could say. But um, I just wanted to comment about the I wanted to comment about I don't, the Lobos. Kickball's big here, as you know. I know. As <laughs> you. We've been here for quite some time. Right. <laughs> I am a subpar kickball player, for those that don't know. So, um, But I'm excited to it. see where the Lobos are going. Yeah. So. Well, they're going this weekend in Texas. You know, it's going to be a tough fight out there. At Texas A&M, it's going to be a tough fight out there. You yeah, know, so we'll I see have how faith. It goes. There you go. That's yeah. that's the beginning of everything. Is faith. Yeah, paint the town cherry. That's right. <laughs> thank, there you go. I appreciate you saying that. Hey, there's Dan McKay from the Albuquerque Journal. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Whenever you can carve out time for us, and today is one of those days. We really appreciate it. What's your one more thing this week? 
you know, on my mind is, uh, I guess, sort of this broader political environment where there's so much venom directed towards election workers and the people who conduct um, our elections. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that many of them are uh, actually just temporary workers. You know, they're they're uh, akin to volunteers almost. They get paid so little and they come in each election season and, um, you know, run the polls for a, you have a really long day on election day, run early voting locations, that kind of thing, uh, count absentee ballots. Um, and I, I wrote this week about uh, Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver, who actually uh, fled her home and went into hiding for uh, five or six weeks last year due to the volume and intensity of threats. Um, it, there was a website that was published that um, targeted election officials all over the all over the country, and she was one of them um, with you know, crosshairs over their photos and describing them as enemies of the people. Um, uh, she did get some death threats. Um, uh, she's obviously a really prominent elected official, but like I said, you know, there are many sort of uh, people just carrying out the elections on the ground who also face incredible hostility. Um, uh, there was an incident in Doniana County where a, uh, a man followed a, a county staffer back uh, at night uh, back to her office and actually kind of slipped in the door behind her. It was a locked door, but wow. um, was following her so closely that he could gain access to a restricted area. And, um, you know, there is some talk at the legislature about what steps, if any, they can take to help protect election workers and make sure that they feel like they can do their jobs without uh, intimidation or threats. Um, I, I think that's something that I'll be keeping an eye on. Uh, we have local elections um, here this year, and then we will have uh, statewide elections uh, next year in June and November next year. Um, so I'll be kind of watching to see to see how that goes. But it, uh, you know, it just uh, it does seem concerning that the people who who do so much as sort of the behind the scenes hard work are are facing such, uh, you know, facing threats and and things like that. I had no idea. At what point in time did our culture become uh, a time where we had to be fearful for working the polls? Right. Um, so I appreciate I appreciate that story, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, and in the in a time of COVID, uh, the county clerks had a great deal of difficulty uh, recruiting uh, poll workers anyway. Um, most mm -hmm. of them are seniors. Um, they used to be paid $75 a day. They got hiked up to, I think it was $125 a day about um, seven, eight years ago, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, that's uh, you know, that's what's paid. And so they, they did recruit enough, volunt uh, enough workers this year, but then to have them threatened like this, it's just, it's pretty shocking. Wow. And and I don't know, are you following, Dan, what's going on in other states about uh, poll workers? A, a, a little bit. I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, it's certainly just kind of a crazy environment, not something I had ever really, I mean, I've been covering elections for, for 20 years or more in New Mexico. And, um, you know, I, I feel like the environment is just different now than it was when um, when I started. Yeah. You know, I got to throw out there, guys, you know, uh, maybe we can pin all this on 20, the year 2016 when a lot of this stuff started. 
I mean, you've got a, a, a recent recall election in California where the opponent who lost a day before was basically calling it rigged. You know, you've got all these people now ginned up in all these crazy ways. And Dan, I can't thank you enough for bringing this stuff to light because this is where it's, the lapse literally is ending up on the, of these elected people. I'm sorry, pe people who run elections. It, it just, it makes no sense to me. I, I just, I, it's very upsetting. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you have focused on this. We need to know about this. Having someone like Maggie Toulouse Oliver hiding for doing her job is unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. So we gotta, we gotta figure this out. I appreciate you bringing that up. Have to wrap that up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs, as you might know, Friday nights, but you might not know, Sunday mornings as well on New Mexico PBS.